Good morning. I usually say open your Bibles this morning, but this morning I'll be saying more keep your Bibles handy. Um, this morning I'm backing up to take more of a telescope view of Matthew and really of the whole meta-narrative of Scripture. Uh, a couple of common themes that kind of run through the book of Matthew. We need to be aware of what's going on and where things are headed, the direction things are moving. So instead of our typical microscope view centered around a few verses, we're going to be backing it up. Sometimes it's good to be wowed by the vastness, the overwhelming enormity of the forest instead of the beauty of a singular tree, isn't it? So I'll be highlighting some big picture structural aspects of the book of Matthew and some prominent Old Testament prophecy fulfillment themes involving Jesus, Herod, John the Baptist, and the temple that run all the way from the birth to the crucifixion in the book of Matthew. And my prayer is that God will use this time to give us a greater sense of awe at the intricacies of His Word. That He would overwhelm us with the rich, transcendent vastness of the whole biblical narrative. There's so much there. We can't know it all, but we can be moved and gripped and wowed by what we do see, even as we strain to reach greater understanding of truths that are so deep and involved that we can never mind their depths. So this sermon or lecture, whatever you want to call it this morning, is the product of me seeing a contrast between Herod's cruelty and Jesus' compassion in Matthew 14, 1-21. That contrast got me chasing the connections between Herod, Jesus, and John the Baptist, and then ultimately seeing it take us back to the temple of Christ being our prophet, priest, and king. And I was blown away. There's so much there. I intended to make the connections and then look at Matthew 14, 1-21, but the more I chewed on the meat, the bigger it seemed to get. You ever get that way? You chew and chew and it, gets, it seems to get bigger and bigger. So, I intend to... Now, I, I, just want, I wanted you to see everything I saw, but I struggled to even get a hold of everything I saw this week. You ever do that? You're studying the Bible and you're like, I can't even pull everything I'm seeing together. It was worshipful, but it was overwhelming at times. It was beautifully complicated and rich and deep and satisfying. So this morning, I'm going to be, it's going to be mostly a biblical theology lecture instead of uh, exegesis and application of a single biblical text. We want to look at the Old Testament link between Jesus and the Herodian dynasty. Herod and the, the kings that proceed from Herod the Great. The link is deeply rooted in Old Testament prophecy. And if there's one gospel writer, author, who loves Old Testament prophecy, it is Matthew. You might call Matthew Mr. So That It Might Be Fulfilled himself, right? Uh, I remember the first time I read through the Bible at 11 years old. I did pretty good on the narrative portions. But some sections were tough for me to get through. Can any of you relate? Remember the first time you read through the Bible? I skimmed some portions more than I read them, if I'm going to be completely honest about it. And amongst the most skimmed of sections were the genealogies. Or the begats, as I called them. I didn't like the begats. <laughs> but the begats matter. And it's at those begats that Matthew actually begins his gospel in Matthew Chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let's start with the son of Abraham part. Remember first what God promised Abraham. I want you to turn to the book of Genesis. We're going to kind of track through the Bible a little, through the Old Testament. But what God promised Abraham. The contrast between Herod and Jesus stretches all the way back to Genesis and it includes both of these aspects, this son of David and son of Abraham aspects. In Genesis 17, 5-7, he tells Abraham that no longer shall your name be called Abram, which means exalted father, but you shall be called Abraham, 
father of many, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I have made you exceedingly fruitful. At that time, he had no sons through his wife. Right? None. And I love God. I love the faith of that, don't you? I've made you exceedingly fruitful. Well, where's the fruit? I promised it. And when God promises it, the fruit's already a guarantee. Isn't that a blessing? I've made you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you. And kings, plural, will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed, singular, after you throughout their generations. And an everlasting covenant to be your God and to your seed after you. God then gives Abraham a son, Isaac, and as the, the, the son through whom the promise would be established. And Isaac, of course, had twins. We remember who they were. They were Jacob and Esau, weren't they? Soon we learn that through this one set of twins, two nations would be born. Turn now from... We looked at Genesis 17, 5 through 7. Turn to Genesis 25, 23. Through this one set of twins, there would be two nations. Before they were even born, God had made the determination that the sons of Jacob would be the favored lineage, but that both lines would lead to nations. Genesis 25:23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. There are two babies, but there are two nations. And two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. That's out of God's normal ways, but that's the way it was going to be. A nation first coming through Jacob. And now turn to Genesis 35, 19 through 12. I mean, 9 through 12. I'm going to read that backwards. 9 through 12. Then God appeared to Jacob, verse 9, and he blessed him. And look at verse 10. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, and you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. There's that nation, isn't it? He's going to be the... the a patriarch of the nation of Israel. Israel shall be your name. And thus he called him Israel. And God said to him, I am Almighty God. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come forth from you. The land that I gave to Abraham, Isaac, I will give it to you. And I will give the land to your descendant after you. That's the promise. So what, he's the one. The, the promises of Abraham, they're going through Jacob. That, but... And, and then we get the, 12, the name of the 12 tribes of Israel right after this in Genesis 35, 22 through 26. And that Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, that's an important one we're going to return to in a minute, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now we see the names of Esau's son. Immediately follow that, you get Esau's, Esau's sons in Genesis 36, 1 through 5. Because God's not done with Esau, even though Esau's not going to get the land that was promised to Abraham. God's not done with Esau. His descendants still had a role to play in God's plan. God said nations would arise from Abraham, not a nation, right? And look at Genesis 36, 8 through 9. There's a nation through Esau as well. And we find out who they are in Genesis 36, 8-9. Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These then are the records of the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. So who's he the father of? He's the father of the Edomites. And then you get a bunch more of these begats. But what does this have to do with Jesus and Herod? Both Jesus and Herod are kings from the line of Abraham. Jesus through the line of Jacob and Israel. And Herod through the line of Esau or through the Edomites. Jesus through the line to whom the promise of Abraham would be established. And Herod through the line that forfeited that blessing. And narratives that we're not even going to go into. But he forfeited the blessing and wouldn't get the blessing. But it would come to the descendant of Jacob down the line. But the biblical link between Jesus and Herod doesn't end there. Not only would the Messiah be the son of Abraham, he also would be the promised son of David. In Matthew 1.1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. The Messiah, the anointed king who was to come, had to descend from David's line as well. Because 1 Chronicles, turn there with me. 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. 
This had to be fulfilled. Everything written in the Old Testament had to be fulfilled. It had to happen exactly the way that God said it would. That's how we know the Bible's true, by the way. One of the main reasons we know is that everything it said happened exactly the way it said it would happen. 1 Chronicles 17, 11-14 When your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, that I'll set up one of your descendants after you, who will be of your sons, and I'll establish his kingdom... He shall build for me a house, and I'll establish his throne forever. You would think it's talking about Solomon, right? But that's not who it's talking about, because did Solomon's reign last forever? No, it couldn't and wouldn't. Any mortal couldn't have an everlasting throne or everlasting kingdom. I'll be his father, and he shall be my son. I will not take my loving kindness away from him, as I took it from him who was before you, speaking of Saul. And I'll settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Matthew has already established that Jesus was from the line of David, but Herod wasn't. But the biblical link between Jesus and the Herodian dynasty runs much deeper even than this contrast. Turn now to Genesis 49.10. We're going to stop with the Bible drill soon. In order to understand how intertwined Herod and Jesus are in the biblical narrative... We again return all the way back to Genesis where we see a deathbed blessing in prophecy. Israel, or Jacob who became Israel, this is what he says on his deathbed to his fourthborn son, Judah. The scepter, that's a king's, something a king holds, isn't it? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. This prophecy is astounding because Jacob was a man who only had 12 sons and some grandkids at that time. And the scepter or ruler's staff language, that's a bit hopeful, isn't it? We don't have a, a, a people to rule over. We don't have a nation. We don't have a kingdom. But he's prophesying that there will be a kingdom. It's, you know, you say it's a bit hopeful, yes, but faith by definition is hopeful, isn't it? And Jacob anticipates the promises that God gave to Abraham, to Isaac, and lastly to him, and that these tribes would one day be a nation, and the ruler's staff would find its way to the lineage of his fourthborn son, the tribe of Judah. And it would remain there until the fullness of time, and God would signal the arrival of the Messiah, this shallow. The word shallow in that verse means the one to whom it belongs. It, he would signal that the, the Messiah was on the stage or when the scepter had departed from Judah. When there was somebody who was king of Israel who was not from the tribe of Judah. David was the first king of Israel who was from the line of Judah. And every king who came after him was from that line until one man. Can you guess who that man was? Herod. Herod was the son of a man named Antipater. And together they were rulers of their people, the Edomites. He comes all the way back full circle. Not somebody that doesn't have the blessing. So the scepter has departed from Judah. And the prophecy is when the scepter departs from Judah, then the Messiah would come. Not, they were rulers of these non-Jews, these descendants of Esau. And they were in conflict with the Maccabean leaders of the Jews. And Rome grew impatient with the constant battling between the Edomites and the Jews. And they came in. They were just more powerful than everybody. So what do more people, powerful people do when they get irritated? They took over. And when that happened, Antipater and Herod slyly changed their allegiance from their own people as a nation. And they allied with Rome. And they showered gifts on the Romans and compliments and flattery and presents. And people kind of like to be showered with gifts and compliments and presents, don't they? They like that. So how do you think that worked out? Well, Antipater was named uh, a, a, a ruler in Judea, in Judea. And Herod was named Tetrarch of Galilee in 47 B.C. Then in 40 B.C., civil war broke out and Herod fled to Rome. And the Roman Senate nominated Herod to be king of Judea, trusting him to get control of the situation. So the, the scepter had officially departed at that point in 37 B.C., and sometime during the lifetime of that man, Shiloh had to come where the prophecy would fail. Of course, we know the prophecy didn't fail, don't we? He, uh, he, uh, the, Matthew writes his gospel to make the case that Jesus the Messiah, 
the rightful heir to the throne, the promised son of David, the promised seed of Abraham. This Jesus has arrived to claim the scepter that had departed from Judah. The ruler's staff that was removed from between his feet. Jesus is the Shiloh who was to come. He's the one who would establish the kingdom that would never end. A throne that would last forever. And that's obviously going to set up a little bit of conflict and contrast between the, the Herods. Anybody from that line of Herod, you're going to have conflict there, aren't you? Between the crony kings who didn't have a, an anointing to be king of Israel, that got it through deceit and flattery, and the anointed king, the Christ, which is exactly what Christ and Messiah means, right? The anointed one. So the structure of Matthew is not thrown together willy-nilly. The con and the contrast between the Herodian dynasty and Jesus' messiahship plays a central role in the structure and the intent of the entire gospel. Walk with me a bit through Matthew now. Turn to the book of Matthew. We're going to kind of survey through there a little bit. It begins, the book of Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus, tracing his lineage person by person through the line of Abraham and through the line of David in, in chapter 1, 1 through 17. Then we get this conception and the birth narrative of the Christ in chapter 1, 18 through 25. Do you see that in your, in your Bible? That's chapter 1 summed up. And then what? What do, we, what do you see in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 15? Turn right there. And what, what do you see us immediately talking about after this lineage and after the conception and birth narrative? Who do we see that Matthew introduces into the narrative? King Herod. Immediately. The conflict starts with Herod the Great. Immediately in Matthew's Gospel. The crony... Roman-appointed, not-God-ordained Edomite king hears from the Magi of the birth of the Christ, the Anointed One, who was born king of the Jews, and Herod the Great wanted to destroy Jesus. In verse 13, But God warned the Magi not to tell Herod where Jesus was, and He warned uh, Joseph of the threat, and Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Egypt until Herod the Great died just a few years later. And that fulfills a prophecy itself, doesn't it? Out of Egypt I have called my son. All the way back from the book of Hosea. But that narrative is only the beginning of the conflict between these descendants of Esau and this seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This son of David. When the dust settles from the threat of King Herod, where does Jesus end up and why does he end up there? Look down at the end of chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. So Joseph got up after Herod, after Herod had died and the threat was gone. And he took the child and his mother and he came to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. And he came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill that which was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. You know, God often moves people indirectly. Sometimes He does it by warning in dreams, like He did with the Magi, and like He had done with Joseph previously. But here, there's no special revelation. But God's still moving him. I'm going to tell you this. Whether you realize it or not, whatever you do and wherever you go, God is moving you. God's still the one doing it. He's working out His plan. What comes apart from His command? We sang earlier, exactly. God's ordaining it and working something out. But He's moving Joseph and Mary and Jesus where He wants Him. Because Joseph simply heard through the grapevine, so to speak, not from God, but in the normal way of hearing things, that Archelaus had been appointed ruler. And that's bad news. Herod's oldest son, Antipater, had been in line for the throne. Had Antipater became king, Joseph wouldn't have been afraid. He probably would have went and gone back to Judea. But Antipater, because Antipater was overall a pretty level-headed dude. But just weeks before Herod died, he heard that Antipater had complained to his mother about how his dad, Herod, was stretching out his earthly existence too long. That's how he said it. I hope my kids never say that about me. <laughs> but he heard that Herod was stretching out his earthly existence too long and that he himself would be an old man before he ever came to power. And unsurprisingly, Herod didn't like that very much and Herod was a bit crazy. We talked about that last week. Others, or two weeks ago. 
Others said Antipater was conspiring to overthrow Herod, an accusation that Antipater strongly denied, but not convincingly enough. And just five days before Herod died, he had Antipater, heir to the throne, executed, his own son. Then, in his will, he left the throne to Archelaus. And Archelaus, once again, he was bad news. Just how bad was immediately put on display. We learn this from the history books. And you say, well, that you're preaching not out of the Bible, but out of the history books. I'm preaching out of something that Matthew knew everybody that he wrote to would have known. So when he says Archelaus, and he would have been scared, he knew why they would be scared of Archelaus. So I'm giving you the background on that, which we do know from history. Throughout Herod's reign, there was a huge golden eagle that was hung over the great gate to the temple. Guys, that's a problem. To the Jews who took the religion seriously, that was an abomination. First of all, because you don't make graven images or idols. And second of all, the eagle represented Rome. So it was placed above the temple gate and that it represented... Well, he loved to just really flatter Rome. So if he puts the eagle above the temple gate, what he's saying is that Rome is a higher authority than the temple. We have the right to exist, but we exist under the authority of Rome. How do you think real Jews thought about that? Didn't like it very much. So when Herod fell sick, two famous Jewish teachers, Judas and Matthias were their names, they were experts in the law, they encouraged their students to destroy the eagle. Forty students complied. They pulled down the image and they cut the image to pieces with axes. Guys, I love that bravery, don't y'all? Herod may have been sick, but he was very vengeful, and he was as decisive as ever. He sent the young men to Jericho for trial. He had them all, the 40 men, mildly punished, but the two rabbis he had executed, actually burned alive and given a dishonorable burial. He liked to teach lessons. Soon after Herod died, just before Jewish Passover celebration, some of the students rebelled and started speaking against what Herod had done and attempted to get people to stand with them against this great injustice. They certainly thought that they would have a better chance against Archelaus than they would have against ruthless Herod. So they, they're going to test him. Archelaus wanted to act decisively and ruthlessly to gain the same sort of respect and fear that Herod was used to and, his, and had used to his favor. So he killed every one of the rebels and a lot more people. It was actually a complete massacre. He ended up killing 3,000 people, many of whom were simply pilgrims who were visiting Jerusalem for the Passover feast and had nothing to do with the rebellion. But he brought the hammer down hard. No wonder Joseph didn't go there. Herod was claiming his throne, this Herodian dynasty, this Edomites. They, are, they were going to have authority and they were going to wield it. They were going to hold on to it. And word got around and Joseph was afraid to live in that territory, but he awaited a word from the Lord. And again, he was warned in a dream in verse 22. The gist of the warning, you're right. You're not supposed to be in Judea. Where was he supposed to go? Well, we have no indication that he was told where to go, just that he couldn't stay. And Joseph returned to the most natural place in the world for him to go, back to his own town, which was Nazareth. It was of his own accord... Yet it was under the guidance of divine providence. Why did they go to Nazareth? Well, not only because Joseph and Mary were from there, we learn in Luke 2, 4 through 5, but also look at verse 23, 2, 23. They went there so that it might be fulfilled. It was Mary and Joseph's purpose just to go there. But you know, when you do something, you think that God doesn't have a purpose in it, there's a purpose above whatever you're doing as well. It was because they wanted to, and it was so that it might be fulfilled in the purposes of God. What would be fulfilled? That Jesus would be called a Nazarene. What does Jesus being a Nazarene have to do with Herod or John the Baptist? You might be wondering, why are you talking about all this now? You know, Herod's been involved in all this. But what does this particular thing... It's interesting. What's it have to do with Herod? What makes verse 23 difficult is that there's not a prophecy like that anywhere in the Bible that he shall be called a Nazarene. You don't find that word in the Old Testament. In fact, Nazareth isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament or in any Jewish writings. The reason that Nazareth wasn't written is pretty obvious. Nobody would have known what they were talking about because the city of Nazareth didn't even exist as a city until the closing of the Old Testament canon. So you can't read of Nazareth. So what's Matthew up to? I always like to point out these contradictions or these, these problems. 
Some have suggested that this prophecy must have been written in some lost book of the prophets. I hate that, don't you? I hate when people say that because they, they, they're, they're insinuating we don't have everything we actually need in the Bible that we have. That's what they want to say. That way we can't trust any of it. You just throw it all out since we don't have it all. Have you ever heard that argument? Uh, it, it's those two theological words I've used before. Hogwash and poppycock. Remember those two? That's what it is. But what is the answer? There has to be an answer. In Matthew's eyes, also, this prophecy is more broadly attested to than any of the prophecies that he's mentioned. With most of the prophecies, he says that it might, that was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. But this, this time, what does your version say? This time, this was written that it might be fulfilled by what was written by the prophets. He's saying more than one prophet mentioned it, isn't he? You see that in your text? Does everybody see it? There is an answer. And follow me here. Mark your spot in Matthew 2.23 and turn with me to Jeremiah 22.24. I told you we're doing Bible drill today. But if you'll stick with me, I think you'll find the voyage worth it when we get to the end. If you're not too hot. Mere human kings can't usher in eternal kingdoms. And God cut off the line of Judah with a curse in order to work out a great plan. God gave Israel human kings throughout the tribe of Judah, but they were all imperfect. They were all unworthy of an eternal kingdom. They were all destined to die like the rest of mankind. And God finally ends the line of earthly Jewish kings, and Jeremiah tells us of the last of the line of kings in Jeremiah 22, 24-30. Listen to what God says. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I will pull you off. Skip ahead to verse 28. Is this man Coniah a despised, shattered jar, or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known? O oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Verse 30. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants shall be sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. He cut it off. And the line of kings would be hopelessly chopped off from right there, even with a prophetic curse, according to Jeremiah. And sure enough, no one born after Jeconiah was ever king of Israel again until Herod, and he was an Edomite. That's where it ended. It's chopped off. And no, no man of, that descends from him would ever sit on the throne. You say, well, how does Jesus become the man that sits on the throne? Because he's from the line of Judah. Well, his dad was a descendant of Jeconiah, if you talk about his legal father, Joseph. But who was his real father? He was born of a virgin for a reason. That Jesus was born of a virgin. And that his real father is God himself. And that he had to be born with a human mother and a God the father and a legal father who was a descendant of Judah. You see that? It's pretty neat. The line of kings hopelessly chopped off, even with a prophetic curse, according to Jeremiah. And sure enough, no one born after Jeconiah was ever king of Israel again until Herod. And he wasn't from the tribe of Judah, which indicated that the true king would be born during his reign. Remember Genesis 49.10, where it says, Until the scepter departs from Judah, or the ruler's staff from between his feet, that's when Shiloh would come. But Jeremiah immediately goes to hope. Look at Jeremiah 23.5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Skip forward again to Jeremiah 33.14-16. We're just going to go right through Jeremiah quickly.
It says in Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah shall be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which he shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare the sacrifices continually. So Jeremiah, and Jeremiah here is actually quoting from another prophet. You, you could just listen to this, but Isaiah, 40, uh, Isaiah 4, 2 through 4. In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It shall come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy, everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and, plunged, and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst. One last text, I'll be done from, from this little run. Is Isaiah 11, 1 through 2. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. It's the last prophecy I want to read related to this. So the stem of Jesse, the line from which, the line of Judah where David came from, that's David's uh, father, right? It's chopped off at Jeconiah. From that stump, there would be a shoot that would spring up, a branch from its roots that would bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now you say, why did you go through all that? What does this have to do with Nazareth? The Hebrew word for branch is Nezer. The town of Nazareth was actually named after Isaiah 11.1. 1. That's what it was named after. It was originally settled by a remnant of Israel who returned from exile from David's line and who consciously gave the new settlement a messianic name. They called it Nezareth. They put, they put it together. It's the, the city of the branch. I, I like to imagine uh, the, the, the sign coming into the town. Welcome to Nazareth, the city of the branch. I know it probably didn't do that, but that's what I like to think of. So Matthew is saying that Jesus came from the city of David, the city of the branch that, brought, that sprung up from the chopped off stump of, Je of Jesse, Right after we have this narrative with Herod trying to get him killed, you are putting this out. The true king has arrived. He is from. He is the Nazarene who is the promised branch who's going to replace you, Herod. That's that's the flow of the argument. Like I said, it's not willy nilly. The whole book of Matthew is logical. Every you're like, why is this story here? Why is this story here? That's exactly why it's there. Herod tries to kill him. They flee. They go to Egypt. Then they go to Nazareth because he is the Nazarene. The one of the branch. Isn't the Bible cool? Anybody else think the Bible's awesome? We see the theme of the branch one more time in the Old Testament, though. Turn there with me to Zechariah 3, 8 through 10. I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. If you're not, don't tell me. It'll hurt my feelings. Zechariah 3, 8 through 10. It says, Now listen... Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I'm going to bring in my servant who? The branch. Now turn to Zechariah, just a couple pages over, to 6, 12 through 15. Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Remember the Levitical priesthood and the king line? One is from Judah, one's from the tribe of Levi. They're going to be brought together by this promised coming branch. That's what Zechariah is saying. And the crown will be a reminder in the temple of the Lord, and those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. Before this branch could branch out 
from where he was and build the temple of the Lord, before he could bring the council of peace between the two offices, before the crown could become a reminder of his righteousness in the temple of the Lord, before those who were cut off, which is referring to the Gentiles, could come and build the temple of the Lord. What's that talking about, guys? What's the temple of the Lord now? He's the foundation. We are living stones built on the foundation that the church is the temple of God on earth, that we are the temple. Before that could happen, though, the law of God had to be completely obeyed by somebody. That's actually where the Pharisees came from. They thought that it was they who were going to usher in the reign of the Messiah by their perfect obedience, when in fact it was the Messiah's own perfect obedience that would validate his own reign and make the temple unnecessary because he was the new priest. He was the temple itself. He was the king who was uniting the offices. And that takes us logically now to the ministry of John the Baptist. And Matthew is nothing if not logical. You marked your spot in Matthew 2.23, I bet. So turn back there where Jesus is called this Nazarene. And where do you think that Jesus, uh, that Matthew goes next? In, ver- in chapter 3, you now see John the Baptist. Let's consider quickly the relationship of John the Baptist to Jesus and Herod. The Old Testament makes it clear that the Messiah wouldn't just show up on the scene unannounced, right? There would be a herald who would announce the Messiah's arrival, who would call the people to submission to this new king, and and this will sound real familiar to you, that will prepare the way of the Lord, that will make his path straight. Remember that? And we see that this is John the Baptist clearly, right? But let me read those, those uh, Old Testament prophecies to you about John the Baptist. Isaiah 43 through 5. A voice is calling, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground be made a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Everything that's wrong, let's make it right. Let's make it all right. Everything that they've twisted and messed up that this herald would fix. Malachi 3.1 Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Again, that's the ministry of John the Baptist. He will prepare the way and the Lord, the, the Lord who you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Malachi 4, 4-6 Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statues and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I won't come and smite the land with a curse. So here we see how John the Baptist relates to the connectedness of the Herodian kings and King Jesus. John the Baptist preaches the unadulterated, pure law of God. John calls out the hypocrisy of the tradition of the elders. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is nowhere good enough to usher in the kingdom or to escape the judgment of God. He is is restating the straight path of the law. He's proclaiming what it looks like to completely obey the Lord your God so that the branch could unite the offices. And what are the respective responses of... Herod and Jesus to John the Baptist. Well, what does Jesus do? Matthew 3, 13-15. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. He is baptized, immersed. Rabbi, I agree, John, with your teaching of the law. Your paths are straight. I will walk in the, the law as you have presented it. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized to review. You're perfect. You can't, you, you, why, why are you coming to me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so at this time, for in this way it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness, to show that what you're preaching is the true righteous intention of, the God, uh, of God, the true interpretation of the law. And I'm the branch who came, who's perfectly going to walk in it, that I, like I have to do to unite the offices and come into my temple. All this logical flow right through the book of Matthew. But what does Herod do? We find out not too far from here. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And Matthew 4, 12, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Right back to... Jesus is baptized by John, the forerunner, the... Herald of the king, the one who's preaching the straight paths, he accepts the message of John as the Messiah, and Herod, the crony king, 
he arrests him, rejects him, showing that he's forfeiting, once again, the blessing of God. A lot like Esau before him, which I'm not going to go into, but you all know the story, don't you? In the Old Testament, Elijah called King Ahab to repentance and was, and, and was unheeded, and, and Ahab was judged. The same thing's going to happen. John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come, whose preaching is an indictment on the wickedness of the crony kings of the Herodian dynasty and a commendation of the righteousness of Jesus, the branch from the stump of Jesse. The Shiloh who was to come, to whom the scepter and the ruler's staff rightly belonged, the one who would fulfill all righteousness. So Herod and John, so Herod had John arrested for calling him to repentance. And once John was arrested, Jesus picked up the message right where John left off. John said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in, John, in Matthew 3, 2. And Jesus starts preaching that right after John is arrested in Matthew 4, 17. And this is an ongoing theme. I wanted to introduce this because we've ran into it. We're going to run into it again and again all the way through the rest of the book. And understanding this helps us when I'm doing the particular beauty of the tree. If we understand the forest, we can hone in when I get to these texts. So I wanted to give a bigger picture so that as we get to them, you've got the foundation. I don't feel like I have to reclaim the foundation every time that I preach these things that come up again and again. Throughout the rest of Matthew, any mention of John the Baptist is related to Herod's refusal to heed and Jesus' appropriation of the preaching of John. Every time. Matthew 11, 9 through 14, right after John has said, Are you the one or should we look for another? Challenging Jesus to do what he said. And Jesus says, Hey, I'm right on path. And he, and he defends John's character. He says in Matthew 11, 9 through 14, turn there. Matthew 11, 9 through 14. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you that among those born of women there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent men take it by force. Notice what's just happened right here. Jesus says... He, this is him who preached the law rightly, the messenger that was sent ahead, who prepared my way before me that I've been walking in. And Herod, he tried to take the kingdom by force by having John arrested. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the law and the prophets prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is the Elijah who is to come. I'm fulfilling the, my ministry that... John pointed me to that I must walk in. They've arrested John, sure, but that's all part of God's plan. It's what's going on in chapter 11. An indictment of the crony king Herod and a commendation or, uh, of the herald of Christ, the King Jesus. So back to, and, and then we, we see in our back-to-back -back stories of Herod beheading John and Jesus' response to the news. Notice, we preached through both of those with their particulars. I'm going to preach to them next week, contrasting them. And I hope the, the contrast hits with more weight as you understand why, Jesus, why Matthew would put them back to back like he does. He wants the contrast to shine forth. He wants you to say, this is wicked John, I mean, wicked Herod having John beheaded. And this is Jesus going out grieving over John and fulfilling the law in compassion and mercy toward the crowds and the masses and giving God all the glory. That's the contrast. That, that was actually taking place in those back-to-back -back stories. Nothing of the structure is willy-nilly. It's all intentional. It's all planned. And it's all according to the same meta-narrative, the same theme that stretches through the entirety of the book of Matthew. Turn with me now to Matthew 17. Right after the transfiguration. I just want to show this thread running. Right after the mountain of transfiguration, the disciples are confused because, you know, Jesus is transfigured before their eyes and his, light, his clothes shine a lot brighter than any launderer could get them. And you've got Elijah and Moses there. And they're confused about what all that means. And his disciples ask him in 17.10-13, Why then do the scribes say Elijah must come first? 
And Jesus answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. I've came, I'm living out the law, and I'm even going to suffer to the point of death and obedience to the law, walking in what John prescribed and going the same path to death that John went down. And they already killed this Elijah who had to come first. But it was all according to God's plan. That's a common theme, isn't it? Guys, when you see the intricacies of Scripture, do you not just say, man, all of this is right according to God's plan. And then you look to your life and you say, all this chaos, it's all according to God's plan. He hasn't lost control. He had control over all... I can't even hold this together and present it in a way that it doesn't drive me crazy trying to get it out and saying, I hope they get this because it's so cool. But he holds it all together from beginning to end. He's the Alpha and Omega and he's everything in between. He's got it all in his hands. I love that profound... What's that theological song? I love the ones that are deep and rich and... Theology, uh, what is it? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. Man, that's good theology, isn't it? it? Truly is. And then I've got one last point to bring the temple in. You've seen this allusion to the temple, haven't you? Because it's, it's been sprinkled through there that this Messiah would come and Herod, who was an Edomite and an illegitimate king, would reject the law preached through the forerunner and that Jesus is the branch who's going to come and fulfill all righteousness and combine the offices. I really like this last part, though. The uniting of the offices of king and priest and the destruction of the temple. The offices, we've already mentioned they were separate, but that's a biblical theme. Deuteronomy 17, 18. It shall come to pass... When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself. This is, this is just talking about every king. This is the law that will be governed by. He'll write for himself a copy of the law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. So the king had to write it from the tribe of Judah, the law out in front of the Levitical priests. It, could, it had to be two people, didn't it? The king from the tribe of Judah is writing it out in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he might learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. But we've already seen that it would be united, Zechariah 6, 12 through 15, that it would be united by the Messiah. They would be pulled together. Remember that? That the, the peace would be between the two offices and that the crown would become a reminder in the temple of the Lord? There was a couple of kings who took it on themselves that thought they were fulfilling that. They thought they could unite the offices. Saul was the first one. Saul had reigned for 42 years, military conquest, expansion of the nation of Israel by the sword. Then in 1 Samuel 13, he takes it on himself to offer sacrifices, which is a priestly duty. And what does God do? 1 Samuel 3, 13-14 You've acted foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God which He commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom forever over Israel if He had kept it, perfectly kept the law. But you've not. And you're presuming above that, taking on a priestly function. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for Himself a man after His own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over His people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. That was the first one. Saul tried to presume to take on the priestly functions and he lost the kingship. And then King Uzziah is the other one. King Uzziah, he was, his fame extended to the border of Egypt. He was very strong. He had fortified towers. He hewn out cistern. He had livestock and plowmen and vine dressers. He had armies ready for battle. But then he went in and he tried to burn incense to the Lord. And the priests came in and they opposed King Uzziah and they said, It's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the son of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. 
great, mighty King Uzziah, who had been such a righteous king, had reigned so well, he thought, I'm the king that can unite the offices. No. When, when you try, I'm going to give you leprosy. And he died as a leper in infamy and disgrace. But there's one that's coming. I want you to turn here. We're going to turn two more places and you're going to be done. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. In the year of King Uzziah's death. You've heard this, you've heard these verses, but you get this context and it changes how it lands. In the year that King Uzziah died, in the year that the king who presumed to go into the temple and burn incense, who thought he was the priest king, who thought he would unite the offices, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. The Lord is the king and Uzziah, you weren't the dude. But the Lord's coming and he's going to be the king on his throne and the train of his robe, that represents the authority. It would fill the entire temple. He has universal authority and not just fill the temple. Seraphim stood above him and each having six wings. With two they covered their face. With two they covered their feet. With two they flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Not just the temple, but the whole earth is filled with His glory. The train of His temple He's the king on the throne in the temple. His train fills the whole temple and it fills the whole earth with His glory. And what happens? The foundations of the thresholds of the temple itself trembled at the voice of Him who called out. And the temple was filling with smoke. We're not going to need no temple no more when this guy gets here. It's coming down. It's coming down. Now turn to the last place. Matthew 21 verse 9. You remember the triumphal entry? Jesus is coming into Jerusalem as what? He's coming into Jerusalem as what? As king. Does he care what Philip of the Herodian dynasty thinks when he comes in? No. Does he care about what Herod Antipas thinks? No. He comes in riding on the colt of an ass as king. And it says the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. From where? From Nazareth. This is the branch. The branch is the one that's going to unite the offices. The branch is the one that's going to be the priest king. This is Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple, verse 12. He entered the what? That didn't work out too good for Saul, did it? And that didn't turn out too good for King Uzziah. But Jesus enters the temple. And he was meek and lowly and he talked to everybody about the problems he had with them. No, no, he drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. He chased them out with a whip of cords, it says in another one of the Gospels. Jesus had an absolute breakdown fit on the unrighteousness going on in the temple. The king priest went in the temple and he cleaned house. And he said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. And then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. Jesus didn't get leprosy like Uzziah. These people come into him and he's healing all the ailments of everybody that comes to him. Instead of him getting sick, he's healing the sick. Sounds like God's honoring him as the priest king, don't it? But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he had done... <laughs> They saw the what kind of things he had done? Wonderful things he had done. And the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. The children are in the temple saying, This guy who just chased you all out, Hosanna to him, he's the king in the temple. And they became indignant. They saw the wonderful things he had done and they became indignant. Not they praised God. Not they were astounded. 
Not they, not they joined in on the choruses of Hosanna's. No, no, no. They became indignant. And skip down just a little farther in Matthew 21, 23 through 27. He leaves for a while, he comes back and he enters the temple. And the chief priests and the elders of the people come to him while he's teaching. And they say, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you all this authority? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Jesus loved to answer questions by asking questions. And he answers it. Which, if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. What was its source? From heaven or of men. When Jesus was preaching the law in the wilderness, was he getting the law right and baptizing people into the right interpretation of the law or not? Was he really teaching God's law rightly or was he not? Answer that and I'll tell you by what authority that I do these things. And they began reasoning among themselves. If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people. So instead of answering it rightly and actually trying to figure out what the true answer was, they, you know, they strategized their answer to save face. Because they didn't care about truth, they cared about saving face. And they said, we cannot answer. We don't know. And he said, then neither will I tell you the authority by which I do this. What's written between the lines here? It's written, of course John's teaching was from God. And yes, he preached the law rightly. And whoever it is that perfectly obeys the Lord, that observes everything the Lord said, would be the one king who had authority over the temple and would unite the offices and whose crown would hang as a reminder in the temple. It's me. If they would have answered, he could have answered them and said, it's me. They already knew. They didn't care. Guys, it's him. Everything is Him. It's everything just points right back to, G, to King Jesus, to Priest Jesus. The last of the prophets was killed by the last of the kings. The last of the mere human kings. The rejection of God's law by the Jewish people was complete. But Jesus, the promised righteous branch, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, Jesus had perfectly obeyed the Lord our God. Like Jeremiah, I mean like Zechariah 6.15 said that he must. And he preached by, uh, just as it was preached by the herald of the Messiah, the Elijah who was to come. Malachi 4, 4 through 6. Behold a man who is branch. For he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Helam, Tobijah, Jedidiah, and Hen, and the sons of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. How do I know that Zechariah was really inspired by God? Because this happened. How do we know the Bible's true? Because how... Do you hear how this fits together? You can't even hardly hold it all together in your mind it's so intricately fit together. But God did it. You read the Bible and you study the Bible and you know this has divine origin, don't you? You know the Lord did it. And it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. Jesus did completely obey the Lord our God. And it took place. And the end, no temple made of stone is necessary any longer. We don't have a temple, you know why? Because we don't need to offer any sacrifices. Why? Because Jesus was sacrificed for our sins once and for all. And then in Matthew 24, 1 through 2, Jesus goes outside right after this episode. And he comes out from the temple and he's going away with his disciples come up to him. And Jesus points to the temple and the buildings around him. And he said, Do you see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Good riddance! 70 AD, it's all gone. The temple was filled with smoke. The foundation shook. It was demolished. Why? Because we don't need that temple anymore. We've got Jesus. And in Christ alone, my hope is found. The stone that the temple rejected has become the chief cornerstone and it is marvelous in our sight. As the perfect act of law-keeping, the king himself came from heaven and offered his own sinful life as a sacrifice for the sins of those who the Father had given him.
when John, when he came to John, the first words John said, according to the book of John, was, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. He's the temple. He's the sacrifice. He is all in all. He's all we need. Look to Christ and live. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for fulfilling everything that you had to do to redeem us for yourself. God, we thank you for offering yourself as the final sacrifice, a sacrifice sufficient once and for all. And Lord, now we come to the table to recognize that sacrifice as a centerpiece of our worship. Lord, we want to obey you, but we recognize that you perfectly obeyed all things and made it possible for you to have your body broken and your blood shed that we could be forgiven. Lord, make us a people that forgive as we've been forgiven and give us the courage to live in line with your word, knowing that as we expand your kingdom by the power of your spirit, even if they kill us like they did John and like they did you, you rose from the dead, you defeated death, and that we are united to you. And that if we die in Christ, we will rise also. Give us that courage and give us that faith to live out the faith that you've entrusted to us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.